Hello, I'm Lale Arikogli, and this is Women Who Travel, a podcast for anyone who's curious about the world. We spent the last couple of episodes thinking about taking care of ourselves through rituals like cooking and gardening. Today, I'm diving into that big, broad, and sort of vague word, wellness. January, obviously, is a time when we're all trying to better ourselves, whether it be by renewing gym memberships or trying to, if you're like me, just go to that yoga class a bit more. It's why here at Condé Nast Traveller we're running a whole series of stories about wellness on our website right now. We found there's just such a huge hunger for it among our readers. And so it's no wonder then that the wellness industry itself is hugely profitable. But sometimes it feels like the more options there are, sound baths, Ayurvedic yoga, ayahuasca retreats, the less I understand its meaning. To find out more about what wellness actually is and who it's actually for, I caught up with author and friend Faria Rosen. I met her in 2011 after we both arrived in New York for what I think we thought would be just a single summer. Me from London, her from Sydney. It was one of those magical, sticky NYC summers packed with rooftop parties soundtracked by Brooklyn fireworks and Puerto Rican music floating out of car windows. We were at the very start of our adult lives and figuring out who we were and how to take care of ourselves. Today, Freya is a published poet, a novelist and a non-fiction writer. And her recent book, Who is Wellness For?, explores the ways the progressive health industry has appropriated and commodified global healing traditions and her own coming to terms with her sexuality, trauma, roots and faith. It's a fascinating and nuanced look at all the complexities and problems and a lot of the good things around wellness. I think we still haven't had a good discussion yet about like, what does it feel to be a South Asian person and just see your culture taken all the time. When you're doing like Om Shanti Om and it's like a white girl, it can annoy me. A couple of people have told me sort of who was one of those for is the first time they've ever read anyone kind of voice the things that they've been wanting to say about yoga. And, and the only way that I think that I can be okay in those moments is if I can sense some sincerity in the teacher and I'm like, okay, you're not like an idiot, you're trying. I haven't seen Faria for some years thanks to the pandemic. Since we last saw each other, she's moved to LA. And, you might notice, has a surprising amount of traffic outside her window. Back when we were in our early 20s, we went everywhere in our group of friends together, greedily experiencing New York. We just formed this little gang that did everything, and I've never had that experience since. I've never had anything sort of as, like, concentrated and intimate And I think that, for me, I also feel like it was deeply formative. I feel like one of the things that made us so tight is we were all from different parts of the world and had different backgrounds, and we'd all found ourselves in Brooklyn at the same time. And, of course, you knew some of our friends from back in Australia. But I have this, like, really amazing memory of a bunch of us sitting around the table and, like, comparing our accents and recording it on the phone. Did I have an Australian accent back then? You yes, did. I did. <laughs> I'm interested when you got to America, what was the sort of adjustment period like for you? When do you think you felt like you 
felt at home in the US or is that still work in progress? One of the issues with urbanization, and this is kind of something that I've been grappling with New York a lot, is that it does divorce you from the land. It severs you from that access. We're supposed to be in observation and conversation with the world around us. And it's as simple as being like, maybe that's why so many of us are depressed, that we don't have access to nature. In Australia, taking care of yourself is very different as it is in America. And I think, you know, in London and and, in the UK, it's also very different. Uh, Sydney has the third highest standard of living in the world. Like, you get paid well, you know, you have free health care. You can take care of yourself. And I think as a society, it's really trying to, especially I think during COVID, it was really beautiful to see how Australians kind of came together to protect each other. All my family are still there. There are public services to ensure that, at least in Australia, that you are protected to a certain degree. And everything from homeopathy to osteopathy to chiropractors to Reiki, I had access to as a teenager because my sister was into alternative medicine. It was interesting because it wasn't out of privilege although maybe it is a privilege to have access to those things so young, but not like a financial privilege. It was just because my sister was is a very, very new age kind of bitch. <laughs> and is that something that like everyone can enjoy there? Like just like some clarification on like how that works? Yeah, anyone can enjoy that. Like it's not, all of it's not subsidized by the government because there's definitely ways that it's more accessible and available in Australia than it wasn't here. There are alternative medicine practices that you can get in your healthcare, for example. In her book, Who is Wellness For?, Freya uses the subject of self-care in all its many forms as a way to talk about her own very personal path of healing. Like I've very much dedicated and committed myself to healing publicly. It wasn't something that I ever like conceived that I could do or wanted to do. It's something that just kind of was like literally the only thing that made sense to me. I think that with my mom, it's such a deep wound to be abused on such myriad levels, but also just like, you know, I've never told you this because it's something I only figured out in my adult, like later in my adult life. But, you know, I was sexually abused by my mom and I talk about that in in Who Is Wellness For? And it was deeply uncomfortable. It's still deeply uncomfortable for me to talk about. I really escaped. I really didn't want to be around my mother. So I, it's sad. It's sad that places can kind of shatter Mm -hmm. your connection to something. And I think that's also why I have such a kind of overly nostalgic, romantic relationship to Australia, because it's almost as if I feel like I can't ever have it. It's like this longing that I have for something that I wonder will ever be mine again. It's a longing for the land. It's a longing for home, I think. I think the way that I found some clarity is really understanding that as home is really inside of you and you have to find safety in yourself first. 
Like, I have a beautiful home in Los Angeles, and I hope to have many different kinds of homes around the world. And I want to be in communion with the earth. And, you know, it's, it's corny, but it's like, I'm very much like, I didn't have a mother, and Mother Earth is my mother. I feel like LA, even though it's a massive sprawling city, one of the things that's very beguiling to me is access to nature, whether it's the ocean or hiking trails. And it is so beautiful there. How important is being outside to you when it comes to self-care? It's strange because I think that as a writer, I mean, maybe you relate, like I have felt very sedentary for a lot of my 20s and like, you know, maybe a lot of my life, like I've always been like a book smart kid. So like, you know, I would be reading, you know, I crumpled up reading something. And it was only until I moved to LA that I was like, I like the sun. I just see the mountains, you know, and there is something so majestic and I know that this word, it might seem like misused or weird in this context, but deeply erotic. Like the nature is so erotic in California. I'm truly astounded in a way that I feel like Joan Didion was like writing about just like the sort of expansion and the ways in which the lushness and the, you know, the succulents, the verdant green all around us. It's just truly remarkable. And I, I know that in my own life that that's true, like something deeply lifted, like deep, deep thing lifted when I moved to LA. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I can go into the sun anytime, like it's, it's so beautiful. I wish you could see it. It's, it's and, snowing yeah, outside it's right now. stunning. In this unseasonably, <laughs> creepily well, warm New York winter where it hasn't snowed, it's now snowing. So I shouldn't complain, but I do just want to, I do want to be in your sunshine. But wait, I'm so interested to know that, you know, you were kind of an indoor kid and I also was an indoor kid. And I would say it's only like in recent years that I've discovered how much being active and being outside actually makes me happy. Hmm. After the break we get into the weeds of meditation and yoga and destination wellness trips. If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you, and we really do read every one. The thing about appropriation that's really difficult is that it's actually beautiful that so many people have resonated with yoga around the world. I think yogis and, you know, the founders of yoga, not that anyone really founded it, but, you know, like the men, the rishis, the yogis that made the spiritual art form would be very happy that so many people practice yoga and meditation because all of these things are really important. And it's quite profound that as a society, we've all kind of like been like, oh, I think this is a really good thing. It's the fact that these are billion-dollar industries that have absolutely no desire to replenish the resources that they are outrightly stealing from. So it's not so much that appropriation itself is bad, it's more that there is no thoughtfulness and no interrogation. 
Most people don't know that yoga was outlawed in India by the British and that these spiritual practices weren't allowed by Indians to practice by and large. So not only were all of these resources stolen, the culture's entire fabric was not allowed to be. And so people were then disconnected from their spiritual selves, from their ancestral selves, from their ancestral land. And that is how you colonize people. You do it through centuries of disarming and ensuring that people don't know themselves, that they have no ability to have agency ever. As you're describing this, I'm thinking so much about the travel industry and how wellness is such a huge, huge multi-million dollar part of that industry. Is there a way to be a responsible and thoughtful traveler who is enjoying wellness experiences? Can you practice something like yoga in a way that is also conscious of what and who it's been taken away from? Yeah, I think that if you can, if you are being conscientious about exchange. So one way I talk about it in the book, like if you have a yoga studio, by all means, like get yoga to the people, totally. But don't take all the profits for yourself. Have a way that you're giving at least 25% to multiple sources in India. There is this like fair exchange. Right now there's no fair exchange. It's indigenous understanding and I, I was raised with this too. I, you know, like, I think it's a very kind of honestly, like, uh, I was gonna say Muslim thing, but maybe it's more that it's a people of color thing. Maybe it's like a, a desire to want to give equally. You know, so it's like, you give me this, okay, I'm going to give you this. And it's a constant sort of like flow of exchange. As consumers and people who are engaging in modern society, it's really important for us to really unpack what does it mean to be an ethical consumer. There are like practical ways, right? It's about being even thoughtful as to like, what yoga studio you book with and doing a little bit of research. Or if you're staying at a hotel that has wellness programs. It's about looking into how they're actually programming it and who they work with and I guess where the profits go, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and just being engaged. What is your own yoga and meditation practice, both at home and when you're traveling? How do you do it? Mm. I just do it on my own now. I meditate every day. I don't do yoga as often as I'd like to, but I did Panchakarma, which is an Ayurvedic cleanse in Bali, in Indonesia. It brought me back to my roots in a really profound way, and it made me realize that this is, like, my people thought of this, and it's so cool. Like, you know, literally 15,000 years ago. Wait, how did it feel doing that in Bali where it's like a wellness theme park? It's interesting because I was at this Ayurvedic center that's owned by an Indian woman. All of my experiences were either with Balinese folks or like an Indian. It was I didn't experience a lot of whiteness on the trip. And I think that that really allowed me to kind of navigate it in a more holistic way. And I felt so connected because 
I think also Bali is a Hindu state. Yoga is very indigenous to Bali. And so it was kind of just like a way for me to kind of connect deeper. What I long for, I really want to go to India. And I think that doing yoga in India would be really magical. You haven't been to India, right? I haven't. I haven't been. And I, it's one of the places I want to go the most yeah. in the world. Yeah. Out of interest, <laughs> it sounds like when you were in Bali, it was like you were going to the right places and with the right people. But every time I go to a yoga studio, and I, I do really enjoy doing yoga, but I sometimes like get the giggles with the soundtracks because it's so on the nose when it comes to the... <laughs> Like, I don't know, just some, some interpretation of just, like, a culture. What are your thoughts on, like, the soundtracks <laughs> to yoga studios? Wow. And wellness yeah, spaces. It, it can really go any way, right? Like, you can get Beyonce or, like, some kind of Buddhist tantric, you know, meditation. It's so wild. Like, I think those things, like, I know a lot of white people that are really trying and trying to do it right. And I really think that that's beautiful. Like when I see that and it's honest, I'm like, good. I want us to encourage each other more as people to be good, to, you know, it should be easier. But definitely like there are some times when you're like, girl, you do not fucking care. And <laughs> this is atrocious. And why are we listening to this? But I don't know, like I can really get into it. Like the other day, this Drake remix came on and I was really into it. I was like, that's good for right now. Like downward dog listening to Drake. So sometimes, I don't know. I think it's all about intention. I want to be a little tongue in cheek, but you know, it is also about intention. I, I want to be serious too. Like it is important to be thoughtful, you know, and like just be thoughtful about like every element. After the break, Faria on her evolving relationship with her faith. I was a pretty good Muslim girl. You know, I really believed, still do, I, I've changed a lot, but I still have that kind of identity of like, I have a good relationship with the faith and I was raised in a way that sort of allowed for space and allowed for sort of like not only space I think it's like all of these things are deeply important to question and challenge and ask and think about. Do you think that moving abroad and living outside of Oz really changed your relationship with being Muslim and how you perceived being Muslim? I say this as someone oh, yeah. who technically is but has never practiced. 
I always got you. I always felt like I got this part of you, even though, like, it, you know, I know that it wasn't what you were raised with, but I think I love being Muslim, and most people are weirded out by that. They're just like, okay, that's strange. It's not a thing that I think you hear most women that look like me say. Every kind of Orientalist understanding I had or shame that I deeply embodied after 9-11, as a lot of us, I think, did, that is has sort of transformed into like a deep desire for justice and, and a deep desire to protect my people and protect sort of the image of what Islam is to me and, and you know, show an example of like, there are people that have like a deeply connective relationship and like soulful connection. You know, nobody forced me to be Muslim. Like no one asked me to wear a hijab. Like it was never my relationship with the faith. And because of that, and I understand that that's a privilege in some degree, but I don't think it's an anomaly. You know, I think we have this sort of like overarching idea of most Muslims, just or mo most Muslim women, most femme Muslims, to be so silenced that they have no choice, but that's not the Muslim women I know. So I think that my evolving relationship to the faith has a lot to do with me expanding as a person and really making space for my own joy and for desire for you know relationship outside of just god but the way that i understand it is is a deeply spiritual and philosophical way that i think that like faith is supposed to be which is these things are deeply mercurial and for you to figure out on an individual way what works for you feeling centered or discovering self-care practices that work for you can often come from finding community like, just meeting other queer Muslims, you know, like, the person I'm seeing is a, is a trans Muslim person, and it's just, it's just, like, deeply amazing that we live in, like, this time of, we are just being true to ourselves, and we're just being honest in our own iterations, and that's really cool about this time. Like, we can be anything, and I really feel that. Like, I can be anything that I want to be, I just have to be myself. Are there like Muslim wellness practices that we're just not paying attention to? Oh, interesting. I mean, yeah, but I think that it's harder to talk about Muslim wellness practices because a lot of the way that Islam came into society is it emerged with the culture it landed in. So it kind of like became like strengthened that society or a different thing. So there's no like unilateral I don't know if that's the right word no but I think no, that makes like, sense because it's so you know like you find Muslim people in like so many different parts of the world and so exactly, naturally it yeah. evolves in different ways definitely just sort of small things like the importance of honey is like talked about in the Quran and like in certain hadiths like there's a lot of specificity like neem like there's a lot of things like neem the plant or like black seeds I think black castor seeds there's specific things that the Quran talks about that I think is really interesting and I think it's something that I want to explore in like a future work. I love that you mentioned honey. Yeah like honey is a really important component in, that's talked about in the Quran and like isn't it just so cool to just think about like these plants or these things were available back then and like 
there's certain ways that I know that as a very expansive global people, it's really cool to see how like culturally there's like specificities of like what Islam was able to do and like kind of adapted to. Yeah. The way that like trickles down into like culture as well, because I'm just thinking about like how present honey was in my dad's upbringing and in Turkish food. Like it's really one of the things I associate with eating breakfast in Turkey, like in Istanbul, at like my family's house. And, you know, like you think about the roots of where that came from and like it probably was through some religious practice, like way, 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 way right back. Also, there is like a practice of fasting and depriving yourself mm-hmm. of those things. Has that like been part of your practice or do you see that as like yeah. part of your wellness or? Yeah, totally. Ramadan is so sacred and it's so instrumental, not just in Islam, but in so many different cultural practices, you know, whether it's fasting for Passover, I believe you fast for, or like Lent, you know, it's different cultures have different ways of engaging with fasting. And in Islam, Ramadan is such an integral part of, I think, your spiritual life as a Muslim. And for me, it's one of the most sacred months of the year, if not the most sacred month of the year. And I think the way that And I also write about this in the book, but you know, like we have these really contorted ways of thinking about fasting. And like, obviously it's like tied to like diet and diet culture and like fat phobia. But it's really, when you think about it, it is really important for us as vessels, as as humans to sort of release. And fasting has such amazing properties to the body. It has such value to the body and value to not just your physical body but your spiritual body it's really a deep full cleanse and so like everyone from jesus to cesar chavez to simon whale all fasted as ways of kind of connecting to god and it's really deep and really profound i love fasting Next week, in honour of, dare I say it, Valentine's Day, we look at travel and relationships with psychologist Dr. Orna Guralnik, the host of Showtime's documentary series, Couples Therapy. Thank you for listening. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and you can find me, as always, on Instagram, at Lale Hanna, and follow along with Women Who Travel on Instagram, at Women Who Travel. You can also join the conversation in our Facebook group. Alison Leighton Brown is our composer. Jennifer Nelson is our engineer. Jude Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. <laughs>